Welcome to Mintcast, the podcast by the Linux Mint community for all users of Linux. I'm Moss, and I'm in charge. Becoming a politician, I'm Joe. Learning how to speak, I'm Norbert. Failing my way upwards, I'm Josh T. And not feeling very clever right now, I'm Bill. This is episode 382, recorded on Sunday, the 6th of March, 2022. Livestream information is at mintcast.org slash livestream. If you see something you'd like to hear about, tell us. Send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. Join us live on YouTube, post at the Mintcast subreddit, chat with us on Telegram, Discord, Facebook, or post directly at http colon slash slash mintcast.org. First up in the news, Linux crosses the sea, we look into Steam, Flatpak improves, GNOME gets more customizable, about time, in security and privacy, BVP47 found after 10 years, then in our wanderings, I'm shaking in my boots and singing about it, Joe fixes more things, Josh T is back from the farm, Bill keeps trucking, and Norbert goes to Maui. Linus Torvalds begins to rewrite the kernel in a more modern version of C. That's interesting. From ZDNet, the Linux kernel is written in a long, outdated C dialect. The 1989 version of C language standard called C89. Linus Torvalds has decided that enough is enough and will move Linux's official C to 2011 C11 standard. This isn't as big of a transition as it may seem. C89 still has almost universal support because any C compiler is backward compatible with earlier versions. You won't have any trouble compiling or running a C89 program. So a C11 compliant compiler won't have any trouble with any C89 legacy code. The situation came to Tavalt's attention when in order to patch a potential security problem, in the kernel, another problem was revealed in the patch. Apparently, someone was running an intermediary version of C, and there were some bugs in that one. And so, uh, Lena says, well, that's not good. Mm. Let's move to a little bit more modern. There are newer versions of uh, C than 2011, but uh, this is one he picked. Yeah, he, he said that when he was uh, trying to troubleshoot something, there's a quote that says, the whole reason this kind of non-speculative bug can happen is that we historically didn't have uh, a C99 style dec- declare variables in loops. So there was something that was introduced around uh, 99. I mean, it is supposed to be uh, backward compatible with older code, a more recent compiler, but apparently there was something that was causing issues. So it wasn't just because they thought it was uh, too outdated because it apparently still worked, but there was something, some specific uh, thing that the new compiler or or that couldn't be implemented in the old version of the code. Collabora details how SteamOS 3.0 works on the Steam Deck, and this is from 9to5Linux. According to Collabora, the Steam Deck comes with two system partitions with two different versions of SteamOS. These partitions are used alternatively when upgrading the operating system to a new version, and there's also a smart bootloader that automatically selects the newer SteamOS version or falls back to the previous one in case of a boot failure. That's cool. 
When upgrading a new operating system image is written to whichever partition is not currently in use before rebooting the system. A specialized bootloader module then automatically selects the newer operating system and boots into it. If the upgrade was successful, you continue to use the new OS and the previous system partition is reused for the next upgrade, explains McVitie. SteamOS 3.0 features a desktop mode that lets you turn the gaming handheld into a portable desktop computer. It also features a developer mode that lets experienced Linux users access Arch Linux's Pac-Man package manager to install various packages and the full power of KDE Plasma. Now, okay, what this is saying is, is that there are two partitions from root up to um, home. So your home is on a separate partition, and then there's two other partitions that hold like the full operating system for Linux. And then whichever one is being used downloads the new up upgrade for Linux and then writes it to the other partition and then your grub automatically sees the newest one next time you reboot and will boot from that one and the next time it writes over the other old one and so forth and so on and then if there's a failure it falls back. This is necessary for Arch because Arch tends to delete old kernels. Uh, yeah. Period. I well, you know, Mint, Mint tends to keep a few in, but Arch basically, when it upgrades a new kernel, it wipes the previous kernels. This way, they have the pat, the most recent, not current kernel, uh, in a separate partition, so they can't both fail at the same time. Yeah, I th think it's a really interesting and safe way to set it up, and I'm glad to see it implemented like that. Uh, I, I would be interested in actually seeing it in action, but um, I, I don't have the excess cash for a Steam Deck. <laughs> yeah. You were saying, Bill? Well, you can... There's ways of making... It's not immediately obvious, but there's ways of getting Arch to keep as many kernels as you want installed. Um, by default, it keeps the last one that's installed, but you've got this concept of package cache where it will keep the last three syncs to the uh, package manager in a directory in the var. So if you if you run into a problem, first off, anybody that's using Arch ought to be using ButterFS anyway. That way they can do a, a snapshot and rollback. But you do have the ability to reinstall an older package from the package cache, which is in, I think, slash var, slash cache, slash pacman, something or other. Are any versions of Arch running ButterFS by default? I don't know of any. Well, it's not. It doesn't work that way. From the beginning, you're choosing every single option from scratch. You kind of have to ask, is this going to be a rolling version of Arch? Yeah. All, all versions of Arch are rolling, I think. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, you can slow it down. They no doubt chose this option that way. They could be on the fast track with all the changes in, in the graphics drivers and to take advantage of all the new features that the kernel might have to offer. And they need newer kernels for some of this Proton stuff to work right, you know. I think it's genius myself. Yeah. Norbert, I've cut you off a couple of times. What did you have? Yeah, I assume it's rolling because... Uh... You, you don't expect like a message that it says there's a brand new version like 4.0 of uh, SteamOS coming out. But it seems like something uh, like uh, Manjaro, well, they don't keep releasing updates from day to day. But because if this is an immutable system and they release an entire system image, they would maybe release an update 
a couple of weeks, so maybe in every two weeks or every month. But also uh, something important that I read that wasn't in this article is that because of this having two uh, partitions and uh, the new update is written to the one that is not currently in use, it will override the entire partition because since it's a immutable system, you're not supposed to make changes. But if you do enable developer mode and you install any packages, so you modify the root partition, it will still erase the entire thing because Valve doesn't want to be responsible for whatever changes the users might make to the root partition to ensure that the, the new update just works. So if I think if you install a flat pack, so everything that goes into the home, home partition will stay, but if you modify the root partition itself, the current active root partition, uh, when you update and you boot into the new system, uh, the changes won't be present because you're booting into the, pre- the next uh, partition. But even if you boot, try to boot back to the previous one, your changes you made wouldn't be there because it was just overwritten with uh, yet another update. So I'm not sure if you can get around this, but if someone is using, uh, I mean, the easiest way would be probably to, ju- to just install another distro. But if someone wants to use SteamOS, uh, the stock SteamOS, it seems you're not supposed to really touch the uh, root partition even if you have the ability to do so. Okay, well, this seems like a work of genius. It's a shame I'm not a gamer. I'd be really interested in checking this out. But again, what is it? Six hundred dollars for a Steam Deck, or? Well, that's the big one. Yeah, you can. There's three iterations of it. Well, I say iterations. There's three options, and you get a little bit better storage. And is it like uh, the cheapest one? Is it like three fifty? Yeah, it's three between three and four, and then the. Yeah, but the 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 low cost one does not have an upgradable hard drive, so you're stuck with whatever. But you could still buy an one terabyte SD card and put it in. Yeah, but micro SD cards are extremely volatile, and the the read write speeds are still going to be slower. I, I'd rather get the one that has the M.2. Something you get with the the screen is a little bit better with the higher price one too. You get some kind of yeah, the extremely high price one. Yeah. The the five twelve one, yeah, and I also think they've said somewhere that most people who are, pre- are ordering a Steam Deck are ordering, I think, the highest priced one, either that or the middle range one, but not not the cheapest one, which makes sense because it's still a very good uh, value if you consider. Well, I'm on the list. I haven't got my email yet, though. Yeah, the the five hundred and twelve gigabyte version is a hundred dollars more than the two hundred and fifty six gig version, so that's five forty nine and six forty nine respectively. And honestly, if you're if you're going to be spending five forty nine, you might as well spend the six forty nine and get the the slightly better screen. And I think it's got somewhat faster processing, but uh, I don't remember all the stats. I'm just waiting for somebody to make a video on changing that M dot two drive, and then you know they want to probably get it in as many people's hands as as possible before people start figuring all that out. Yeah, well, you know, if it's a twenty two eighty, then yeah, uh, it's pretty easy to get a one terabyte or a two terabyte and drop that in there. Oh gosh, I've got a drawer full of all of those. Well, the smallest I've got a couple of the smaller ones and a couple of the biggest ones. It would be trivial, but getting to it, you know, that's obviously going to be the the biggest hurdle. I think iFixit did a teardown video of the Steam Deck. I haven't seen it yet. That'd be it would be interesting to know. I'm pretty sure Valve did one as well. They were the first one. Apparently, I said that people shouldn't be following what they're doing, but they just apparently wanted to show how to take it apart anyway. Okay, well, uh, let's see what's going on in Flatpak, Bill. From uh, okay, so Flatpak one point. One four promises network D access to X11 and 
Pulse Audio Services. This is from 9to5Linux. Flatpak 1.14 will likely be released later this spring with major new features like the ability to create a directory for XDG state home. That's an environment environment mari- variable, by the way, and set the uh, another environment variable uh, host underscore xdg underscore state underscore home environment variable as well as network d access to x11 and pulse audio services if an app has network access i don't think that's a daemon bill i think they're just saying network access well what i mean is these are these are settable environment variables you're saying network d and it's just networked is what i'm saying that's how you say that networked no, I, th- I think that because this is an extra E, so it's network ED, which is supposed to be networked. I was also, I was also confused. Oh. If it, if it was a daemon, it would be network D, like as in system D. But this is just talking about network access. Well. Okay, keep going. Color, color me silly. Uh, <laughs> You're silly. Right on. Another interesting change in the upcoming Flatpak 1.14 release is a new... Have kernel module foo, that's have dash kernel dash module dash foo, family of conditionals for extensions. According to the devs, this is a generalization of have Intel GPU, and it appears to be useful for extensions that only apply to specific hardware, such as for NVIDIA GPUs. Among Other noteworthy changes, Flatpak 1.14 promises to add the ability to export app stream data for the host system to use, implements command line completion for the fish shell, and adds the Flatpak document unexport tac tac doc id equals dot 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 command to allow users to unexport non-existent documents. On top of that, Flatpak 1.14 brings many other changes, including improved performance when finding related refs, improved Wayland support by allowing for absolute paths in Wayland underscore display, improved reliability of detecting the current GTK theme, support for SHA-256 instead of SHA-1 to avoid false positives from static analysis and much more. So to add to the conversation about improving the all the back end behind snaps, we have all this in, uh, improvement to uh, Flatpak. I approve. I do as well. The ideal future for Flatpaks is the point where every user won't even notice that they're using a Flatpak. And, you know, I think we're there for most people right now. I've got like four people on Mint and they just they've got all this stuff installed. And from their point of view, as long as you don't go too far off the rails in terms of the theming, it's really hard to notice a difference for normal people, I think. Right now on my desktop, I was using Audacity and I was trying to open a file and Windows didn't pick up my system theme, which is interesting because on my laptop, I think it it, it just does. It, ju- it does use my uh, dark theme. While somehow my desktop, it's the same system, it's a Fedora 3035. So, but yeah, still on Fedora, I think it's uh, Fedora is the most seamless uh, Flatpak implementation that I've seen. I haven't tried Flatpak integration in Mint or PopOS uh, extensively, but when the new visual versions come out, uh, when Mint 21 comes out, 
as well as POP2204, I think I will give both a try. Because since I've just switched to using Flatpaks for a bunch of things, I've got interesting in how different distros implement this. Hmm. I can speak to the Flatpak integration and Mint being very good, down to the theme. Yeah. It's generally very, very solid. I mean, Audacity, you know, you just kind of count on that being ugly anyway, but it, I don't know. I'm looking at it and I'm I'm not seeing, I don't know, I haven't tried to change to a dark theme or anything like that. What's interesting is uh, when you have a file picker, that you uh, press file open and there's a file picker dialog. That has been also restricted to, it could only access uh, directories and files that uh, Flatpak itself has access to. But uh, with portals, I found that uh, in in some cases, for newer versions of Flatpak, uh, I've seen it on Fedora, it will just redirect to a different way. So it's still a file picker window, but it does respect my system theme and it can see all of my drives and directories because apparently it passes uh, the role of picking files to, I think it's called a system handler, I'm not sure. So that way the file picker has access to all your directories as a non-Flatpak apps uh, would, but the Flatpak itself still doesn't. But right now when I was trying to open a file on in Audacity, uh, which is still a flat pack on my desktop, so it wouldn't be able to see all my drives. So maybe there's something that I did wrong. Okay, next we have some GNOME updates. Norbert, would you handle that? Login Manager settings lets you customize the GNOME login screen. This is from 9to5Linux. Login Manager settings, or GDM-settings, is a new app developed by Mazhar Hussain that lets you change various settings of GNOME's display manager. Under the hood, the application is written in Python, but its graphical interface is written in using GTK4 and Libadweta to provide users with a modern user experience. The Fonts pane uh, section lets you change font settings like font type, anti-aliasing, hinting, and scaling factor. In the top bar section, you can change the color of the text and background of the top bar, disable or enable arrows and or rounded corners, hide or show battery percentage, as well as to change clock settings, for example, time it is to show or what format you use for the time. The sound pane section lets you change the default theme, enable or disable overamplification, sound events, and input feedback sounds. The touchpad section comes with toggles to enable or disable tap-to-click, natural scrolling, two-finger scrolling, and adjusting the touchpad speed. Nightlight settings are also there for the login screen, as well as you have the ability to add the custom welcome message to your login screen, which appears above your picture on the login screen. The app is also capable of importing user and session settings, lets you reload settings, features in-app notifications, supports a keyboard shortcut for closing the app, and remembers the window state between restarts. This is interesting, because I had to deal with uh, GDM a couple of times, for example, when I would set my primary display out of the three displays I have. It does set it for my user, but every time I boot into a system and the login screen comes up, it just doesn't know because I, I had to manually sudo copy the settings, the GDM settings from my user to the GDM user in order to, for that to work. So GNOME doesn't have something like the LightDM has the LightDM GTK settings that you can do stuff like this in. But I'm not sure if this is an official GNOME app or just a third-party application like the new unofficial extensions manager that can that you can uh, search for extensions and not just manage the installers. But uh, yeah, based on what it's capable of, this is a long-needed uh, feature for GNOME. But probably is it, it's yet another additional program you have to use because you have GNOME settings and then you also have GNOME tweaks. And now you will have a third one for the login screen. The features are good, but you just have to install more and more stuff to be able to customize GNOME. Okay, of course, your your other 
option is to not install GNOME, but <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's like the go-to method before that was to use the dconf manager thing editor. I think the uh, primary method will be to um, avoid GNOME. You still have more options that you used to, but, well, I have to look it up later if it's official or not. But yeah, the problem is that I like GNOME, so uh, I will have to deal with this. Someone has to. Yeah. Shall we move on to security and privacy? Sure, why not? Security and privacy update. BVP47 and the Linux backdoor virus was undetected for over 10 years from bleeping computer. BVP47 survived until today almost undetected despite being submitted to the virus total antivirus database for the first time close to a decade ago in late 2013. Until February 23rd, one antivirus engine on virus total detected BVP47 sample. Apparently they fixed that on February 23rd. I don't know anything about that. I'm not going to talk about that. Uh, who, put, uh, who submitted it to the show notes? I think I did, actually. I found it and put it there because nothing else was there. Okay, so it's a, it's a Linux backdoor. I'm looking through the article. According to researchers, the threat actor pivoted to establish the connection between the external server and... Well, it's, uh, it's mostly a technical description. And we're mostly not technical. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, let's close the security updates. We now move into bi-weekly wanderings, and since I'm running it, I get to go first. So this is my first time hosting Mintcast. Hope I can get through it with minimal panic. <laughs> Distro Madness is back at itsmoss.com. You can come vote for your favorite distros using a format familiar to those who follow NCAA Men's Basketball March Madness. We had a lot of fun last year and think we have the seating system better this year. I'm not sure when we're going to end the first round of voting, so get your votes in if you're listening to this. And um, I will be updating announcements later. It makes a lot more difficulty since uh, we haven't been releasing the episodes on a timely schedule lately. I completely trashed my Bodhi installation on the ThinkCenter M700 Tiny on Friday, trying to get rid of some screen tearing by trying newer kernels and removing them when they caused more issues. And then I tried removing the latest kernel that, that the system installed, and boom, there it all went. And then I made more problems by trying to remove the partition forgetting that I had grub controlled in that partition. So, adventures in working from the grub prompt resulted in success. It took about six hours over two days, but I got it back to what it was. I couldn't get my system to actually read from a USB stick during boot. So that, that was the biggest part of that six hours. The next biggest part was figuring out, finding a website on my phone that I can read exactly what to do at a grub prompt that will get me back. Since I still had an active partition of Linux Mint, all I had to do was restore that, and then I forgot to restore Grub to it, and had to go back and do it again and do that. <laughs> I can tell you what most people do when they get that prompt. Nuke and pave? Yeah, nuke and pave. <laughs> 
Well, I'm better than that. I fixed it. What this tells me <laughs> is that we need a show dedicated to Grub Rescue or Grub in general. A complete I think tutorial. I'll be out of town that week. Mm. I, I'm loving it. Yeah, th there are differences between the Grub Prompt and the Grub Rescue Prompt. Yes. And I don't know what they are. I was just working on the Grub Prompt. We could do a episode generally about uh, multi-booting and distro hopping and uh, boot issues. We had the idea of talking about how to make distro hopping and uh, initial system setup easier. Well, I think I'm the local expert on distro hopping, yep. so... <laughs> the man with the show. Okay. I just got two weeks worth of news for Full Circle Weekly News, so I have some catching up to do. I basically, I don't produce the news file. I edit the news file and record it and produce the show and then send it to Ronnie for publication. I participated in Eurofilk a week ago. We had singers from Seattle, Washington to Germany, Finland, and Sweden. I had a blast. February album writing month ended with me having four new songs. That's one less than I wrote all of last year. I debuted a couple of the songs I wrote yesterday at the Friends of Filk Zoom meeting, which is hosted in Portland, Oregon, and had some of the same people there. I know Gavrin from Paris was there, and my friend Carl Johan Noren uh, from Sweden was there. So I did get to do a couple. But the Friends of Filk meeting, whoever's in the room, everyone gets a chance. And so it, it took nearly two hours for me to get to my second song. And then I had to leave right after that to come to the Mintcast meeting yesterday. So anyhow, uh, I got my new external CD drive. I needed it to use to rip that rare CD I'd mentioned in the last episode. Uh, I made a copy I promised to my ex-wife, my third ex-wife, if anyone's counting. Well done, Moss. The body shop is fixing our car following our being hit by a dog in December. They found more damage from a previous unreported front-end accident, which was hidden by just putting a new bumper cover over it. You should see the pictures. That bumper was bashed into the radiator and also damaged the condenser behind it. And so we're talking almost $1,600 worth of repair work there. Uh, another setback in our trying to get ahead. And we sold my wife's old Moto G7 power phone on Swappa and got a fair price. I have not gotten any offers on my T430, and I still haven't posted the Zia 800 for sale. It would almost have to go to a local buyer because it's huge and heavy. And other than Craigslist, there aren't many options to advertise. Well, that's about it for me, Joe. Well, I was able to get another motherboard for that Dell XPS 139360. Getting that swapped over was interesting, but not very difficult. I did, however, check the caps around the CPU on the new motherboard, and it's getting the same readings as the other board, even though this one worked. So I'm going to have to look again to see if I can find anything actually wrong with the old board. Now, obviously, something's wrong with it because when it's hooked up, it does nothing. doesn't charge the battery. doesn't do anything. It turns on, and it's currently using one of the... Well, it was using one of the 32GB 2242 SSDs that I had, that had Garuda on it, and that was working okay, but um, it hadn't been updated in a while and would no longer update. And then because of some other problems with my PC, I uh, switched that out for a, what was it, a 2230? This thing really needs a 2280, but um, I'm able to bodge it in there and, and get it stuck so that it actually works and stays where it's supposed to. And I tried to put Linux Mint on there, but there, like I said, there was a problem with my computer that I'll get to in a few minutes, So, and it wouldn't work. So currently it has Ubuntu on it, running GNOME, and that's working pretty good. 
Now, it turns out that the first battery that I purchased to replace the old one was actually meant for a 9350, and it's not compatible with the 9360. So then I got another one that was a 9360 battery, but it was giving me some odd readings and sometimes it was coming up as not an official Dell battery. So I, I talked to Amazon and they're replacing that and the new replacement should be here today and I'll do that last swap and it should be good to go. Right now it only works while hooked up to USB-C power. I will eventually need to order one of the official 9360 chargers. And yeah, I was a little surprised when I was able to get it to boot and it said that it was a 9360 instead of a 9350 because I thought it was a 9350 when I bought it. I was able to get the other tape recorder that Moss sent me working, but I have not had a chance to work on his headphones or his teeth yet. The uh, tape recorder that had the hard short on the inside was actually a very easy fix once I figured it out. There was a spacer that had been left in the wrong place and two pieces of metal were touching, one that was power and one that was ground. I moved the spacer back to the correct spot and it just started working again. Now, I think that that um, piece of metal that had power going through it was meant to like clean up the audio recording or something because it's right around where the mic is. So it, it's for just... Like I said, I, I think it's for cleaning up the, the recording as you're recording it, but I'm, I'm not certain. But it does work now. It spins. I think it actually works better than the first one. I, I get less hiss when I press play. Woohoo! So things are coming along, but I just haven't had time to do much of anything. I mean, between going back to the office and, and working on the campaign for the Allen Independent School District Board of Trustees, uh, I really haven't had time to work on my own projects. Lots of boots on the ground on this one, out talking to people to try and get some name recognition, which is really what you need for a local school board type of thing. It's not like, you know, a major political thing. Also, lots and lots of social networking online for the same thing, trying to get my ideas out there. Now, I've been doing a lot of, well, I say a lot, but I'm supposed to be doing a lot of video recordings of myself, of me stating um, my ideas or the questions that people ask of me. Uh, matter of fact, I'm supposed to be doing one either today or tomorrow, and that I will say that the years that I've been doing podcasting in some ways are very helpful and in some ways it, it doesn't really translate very well. I still get very nervous when the, the camera is recording me and I'm trying to do it all in one take. But moving past that, we did get the donation site set up and running after a lot of arguing with the banks and it really should not have been that hard to do, but it, it's set up. And donations are coming in, and I want to say thank you to listener and old friend of mine, Paul, for the generous donation to the campaign. And I'll try to add a link in the show notes in case anyone else decides they want to help out. And once again, thank you, Paul, for the help. If you have ever sent something to Joe for fixing, I highly recommend donating to his campaign in repayment, because he won't take money most of the time. Yeah. Well... I generally like working on stuff, so I, I, I prefer not to take money for it. I, I was also able to get a really, really good price on a set of broken headphones from eBay that had four Razer Nari 3s 
or no, four Razor Naris in it. Three of them were ultimates and one of them is an essential. Also, another of the Green Krakens that my son really likes and a couple of others, all of them Razor. Now, the Naris, two of them are in good condition. That's uh, one of the ultimates and the essential, but they're both missing the USB dongles and the other two... I'm going to have to find a way to replace or repair the hinges, and those are also missing dongles. So most of them, except for the essential, I can test using the dongle that I have for this headset that I'm wearing right now. And um, I'm going to want to keep one of them as a backup. So the perfectly working one without the broken hinges, that's going to be my backup podcasting headset because I really, really like the, the Nari Ultimates. And then um, I just got my caliper working again. I ordered some batteries for that. And I'm going to start measuring the hinges and try to design and 3D print some replacements. Now, I am back in the office for work, which does make things more difficult when it comes to my projects and getting things done. That along with the school board, I am feeling a little underprepared for today, which is one of the two reasons that Moss is doing the primary hosting today, because I also might have to leave before the end of the show. Hi. Plus, Moss, you're doing an excellent job. Well, thank you. Yep. But in... uh, more work-related news, and I think this is good news. I'm starting a new position soon. I just accepted it, and I got final confirmation coming on Monday. It should be at the very least interesting. It's honestly a role that an old friend of mine had for a very long time, and I've always wanted the role or a position on the team. But it looks more like they want me to manage the people there because I also applied for the management position. But because of a reorg, they're getting rid of that management position. So I'm getting the tech lead role. So they want you to do both jobs and only pay you for one of them. Yeah, I I wasn't going to say that out loud on the show. But yes, that's exactly what it is. They want me to do the job of two people while only getting paid for the job of one person. But I'm going to be doing the people management part, and hopefully I will get a chance to learn the tech as I go. It's going to be very, you know, try and on-the-job training type of thing. And today, moving on from work-related stuff, um, I've also been having problems with my garage computer again. It's been randomly locking up and sometimes restarting on its own, and then sometimes on restart... The graphics won't turn on, but I will be able to SSH into the machine. I used memtests and tested things out, and it looks like more RAM went bad, and it sounds like the graphics card doesn't always want to work. And, you know, Chrome was randomly just crashing here and there. And what this is really telling me is that while the RAM might be bad now, the root problem is probably the power supply going bad. Granted, it's just a guess about the power supply, but when everything starts going bad uh, at the same time and it intermittently at that, it's a good guess that it is the power supply. I mean, it could also be the motherboard, but the PS is just easier to replace. And another thing that kind of tells me it's the power supply is when it comes to the graphics card. If it's going through about where the computer won't show me any graphics on restart if i disconnect one of the monitors hence using less power then it will turn on and then i just have to rehook in the other monitor so i'm really hoping it's not the graphics card going bad there and and, and it just need to replace the uh power supply but even that 
isn't that cheap these days. So I guess I'm going to be looking for a new power supply. Norbert, what have you been up to? Well, uh, since I became a host on Mintcast and I've been spending more time talking with native English speakers on this show and occasionally on Linux Saloon, I have become more conscious about my pronunciation of certain words and phrases, as well as I've been trying to improve my accent. Uh, this may or may not involve me just randomly reading things out loud to myself when I'm alone. I'm also trying to overcome my issue of being too tense when speaking live, and I don't mean speaking in front of a live audience, although that does happen as well, but mainly when I know that what I'm saying is being recorded. This isn't the case where I've been making videos to YouTube, but I know that I can just cut it out later, but with a podcast it's different. And this issue of mine is present regardless of what language I'm speaking. I noticed that uh, in the previous recording, and now I'm considerably better at speaking without my tongue getting in a twist and having to reset my sentences. Seven years ago, me and a friend of mine, we did our uh, language examinations, our English language exam. Uh, leading up to the exam, we would just talk in English to each other to practice. Then after the exam, we just didn't stop and it became a habit. So we still do it until this day. Sometimes I, I just notice what, wait, I've been, we've been speaking in English over Discord for like, uh, when we just start talking about something to the point where it just comes uh, as natural to us, which is interesting. And it's, it, it's even weirder for other people to see us uh, just, I mean, we don't really do this uh, as much in public, but online maybe in, we just, in a voice chat, we sometimes do it. But there is only so much you can, that you can improve by talking with someone who is, is also learning a language. So I'm really uh, thankful for the unintentional pressure you guys put on me to, to improve my English. So that's, I'm really, really happy about that. And I did notice my English getting better in the past few months, which is great. Uh, on the Linux side of things, I decided to take another look at the MAUI shell, the upcoming uh, desktop environment for Matrix, which is based on KDE, which aims to be a good experience on desktops, tablets, and phones. I tried it on my touchscreen laptop using Wayland, and while I didn't notice a lot of changes since the last time that I tried it, which was, I think it was late December or early January when they announced it, uh, I did realize something clever that they did. Usually when you start using the touchscreen on any desktop environment, the cursor does one of three things. It either just gets teleported to wherever you tap the screen, which is, for example, most X sessions, XFC, Cinnamon, most, and even Plasma on X, I think, does this. So it just puts the cursor where you tap the screen. On some other others, the cursor doesn't move, but is automatically hidden when the touch input is detected. This is, for example, Unomon Wayland, which is nice because when you want to use, and I think even if you don't have a mouse connected, so when I don't have a mouse connected to my tablet, I think the cursor doesn't even appear. Sometimes it does, which is a bug I, I noticed. But yeah, that's interesting. It also has the, the drawbacks of when, for example, your mouse is uh, in a certain spot and an icon does something that when you hover the mouse over, the cursor over is getting highlighted. So the, the cursor is invisible, but it's still there. So something that it uh, is over will still get highlighted. So for example, I think the default, posi default position of the mouse is some cursor is around the lower right corner. So when I, on my tablet, I bring up the overview on GNOME the, in, on the touch screen, the icons that fall under the cursor, even though there's no cursor visible, will just, the title, the name of the app will just appear because it thinks that I'm hovering my mouse over. It. But what the Maui shell does is it, it doesn't do anything with the mouse. When I started using the touchscreen, like moving windows around, the cursor just stayed in one place. And I could drag and move a window, and I could still move the mouse around. So I think, I thought, maybe I can just grab window with my finger and another window with my mouse and just 
drag them at the same time, which is, I, I don't think it's uh, possible with most desktops because they have the idea of, of the window that is in focus. So yes, uh, and it worked. So the cursor could be used independently at the same time as the screen. So I could drag and move two separate windows at the same time, one with my finger and one with my cursor. This even worked with multi-touch. So I could hold and move multiple windows and with multiple fingers at the same time and with the cursor. I think if the screen can handle up to multi-touch up to 10, I think it might be possible to be moving 10 windows at the same time with your 10 fingers. This in itself is probably not something that would be useful for a lot of people, but to me it shows the attention to detail that they have implemented for touchscreen use cases, since I haven't seen this behavior in, in any other desktop environment. And I think that if, if the default is still the X session, but I'm really hoping for the, play, uh, the Valiant session to be the default for Maui Shell, because it's still not even an alpha uh, phase, so it's very early still to judge, but based on what I've seen, it's really interesting. I'm, I'm hoping it would be something that could be usable without a keyboard altogether. Because right now uh, GNOME is kind of usable without a keyboard. The only thing I'm missing is that I don't have, uh, on the on-screen keyboard on, the, on GNOME, I don't have the arrow keys up, down, left, right. So I'm not able to just go back and edit the middle of command I just input in, or go up and select the previous command. So if I make a mistake in a command, I just have to delete everything up until to the point where I have to fix something. My keyboard case for my tablet uh, broke a couple of weeks ago, so right now I don't even have it. But I realize I don't even use it because for basic commands, uh, the on-screen keyboard is nice. But uh, I'm really hoping for another very capable on-screen keyboard for tablets, or just to be used with the touchscreen screen in general. I know that was a tablet called. What is the name of the tablet that uh, by the Chinese by the Chinese company that claims to be the first consumer-grade Linux tablet? Jingpad. Jingpad. Yeah. So the Jingo OS uh, keyboard keyboard has those arrow keys, but I don't know how uh, Jingo OS development is. And I think at this point it's not even fully open source, but they do plan to open source it. Well, at this point they've laid off half of their staff, and uh, there are some questions whether they will continue. They have announced a new Jingpad C1 and said that they're sold out of the A1. Mm-hmm. I personally am not really a fan of the Jingpad user interface because it, it aims to be, it looks very simple and minimalistic, but it's kind of overly minimalistic, overly simple. It kind of looks like the iPad OS UI, which is not my cup of tea. Some people, I know, do like it, but I don't. Really, uh, I've been really happy with GNOME on my tablet, even though it, it's not a seamless experience because it wasn't intended for tablets. But on the other hand, I really like the GNOME, no, the Jinkpad hardware. Sorry to sidetrack you there. <laughs> no, it was a, it, it was a interesting because I haven't really followed the Jinkpad development. Uh, I think a couple of months ago I heard about they had issues with development and op- open sourcing everything. A couple of days ago we had the news that restrictions will be. A lot of restrictions will be lifted over in Hungary as far as the pandemic goes, so we won't have a mass mandate from Monday. And uh, that applies to the university, so we st- uh, I attended an in-person lecture this week in many months. And it was uh, very refreshing. I hope I won't be uh, sick of it in a couple of weeks, because uh, we will be going back to in-person uh, lectures for a couple of well, like lectures. I'm hoping for, which is the most likely scenario, is a hybrid in-person session online system. It must be unusual to be excited about going to class. I'm sure two years ago, that would have been not what you were thinking. What's up with you, Josh? It's been a relatively uneventful last couple weeks for me. I took a trip out to my cousin's farm in the foothills of California last weekend and spent a couple days with him and his family. It was nice to get away for a while, sit in a house warm by a fire, eating good food and being completely lazy in the presence of good company. And while I was there, 
Two of his goats gave birth, so there were seven new additions to the farm before I'd left. New cousins. There you go. Loud ones at that. I'd been wanting a decent Bluetooth speaker for a while, but didn't want to break the bank on one, so I purchased a Soundcore Motion Plus by Anchor off of Amazon for a little over $100. I'd previously bought the smaller version for my daughter and was quite impressed with it. And uh, this unit, though it was four times the price, was a pretty good value in my opinion. I think it sounds awesome for the money spent and allows me to blast my irritating music into the ears of everyone in the house, uh, which they are less than enthused about. But the highs and mids are very clear, with excellent isolation of each instrument, and the bass is just right for rock and metal listening, so I'm really happy with it on the whole. Yeah, the Anchor is actually a really good buy, but I, I still think you should have talked to me first, Josh, because I also fix Bluetooth speakers, and there's probably six or seven of them within 10 feet of me that I don't have a lot of use for, and at least like three of them are pretty darn nice. Ah, uh, darn it. Well, there I go for not tapping the resources properly again. Uh, well... I came into the new year firmly set on selling my motorcycles. I just don't ride much these days. But with uh, fuel prices in my area now having eclipsed $5 a gallon, I think I may just hold on to it and use it as my back and forth commuter to work. My shoulders can't stand up to long rides anymore, but my work ride would be fairly short, so I think it'd make good fiscal sense to keep it around. Or maybe I'm just looking for another excuse not to sell it, as has been the case in the past. And I started to improve my diet this past week, and many salads were eaten. Boo. This coming week, I plan to implement a new workout routine as well. My goal is a 50-pound weight reduction by this time next year, and I'm confident I can achieve that figure as long as I stick to the plan. Yeah, I've pulled my Mazda 2 off the market. I just haven't been getting any decent nibbles on it. So, what the heck? It, it gets good gas mileage, just my wife can't drive it, and I have too much fun driving it. Anyhow, I will shut up, and let's move over to Bill. Well, this week's been more iterative improvements to the workflow with regards to my other podcast, Three Fat Truckers. Um, for anyone that watched Sunday's stream and shared in the uh, bearing of witness to my utter failure. We ran into a couple of problems with the live stream. Well, I wrote here that I was unaware. I, I, I was aware, but for whatever reason, it missed my attention that if you don't enable the automation on the stream, you have to hit the start button on whether you're using Jitsi, OBS, or whatever, as well as the uh, YouTube studio page. So we ended up not getting the first half hour of our show out. And for this reason, uh, we decided to stream a bonus episode, which was only available on YouTube. Now, as I go on to say later on, if enough people tell me that they want the audio only to that, then I might be inclined to change my mind. But that episode streamed yesterday at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and it lasted about an hour. Now, the reason it lasted an hour is because Jitsi, by default, limits you to an hour of stream or an hour of recording time, and that's if you use their server to do your uh, conferencing. 
Now, folks that only listen to the audio feeds on their podcast player, um, which you should all be using AntennaPod because it's free and open source, will not get this episode, as I said, but they'll get the full audio from episode two. Because, as we know, we run a concurrent uh, recording, each one of us, while we're streaming. And that wasn't affected by the technical issue involving YouTube. So we were still able to get a full episode audio only. As I said, though, if enough people display interest, I might be persuaded to change my mind. But until that happens, no, I'm not planning on doing it. You know, and I've I've, I've been having a lot of fun learning how to make proper podcast episodes using audacity you know i i learned how to import individual audio feeds that is discrete feeds from each individual host and line up those waveforms to produce a better alignment and then i've i've learned how to add the uh theme music to the beginning and the end of the show and uh i've been surprised at uh how much i'm enjoying the experience in the past, whenever I'd look at a piece of the software, like, you know, anything like Audacity or OpenShot or Caden Live or Blender or anything like that, I would just end up balled up in the corner sucking my thumb. But I'm actually getting somewhere with this, you know, which is which is surprising because probably, you know, it, it's just out of sheer necessity that I learned these things. And that changed changed my attitude somewhat, I think. So my work week has been somewhat standard, though just a bit hectic towards the end. I started off the week with a uh, dump trailer on Monday, just running loads of scrap metal from Goshen, Indiana to Butler, Indiana. Uh, it's, I don't know, about an hour and a half between those two towns, but it's kind of like two-lane highway between. Uh, you can typically get two of those done in a day legally. So that was my Monday. On Tuesday, I took an empty 30-yard roll-off box up to Sterling Heights. Now, that's a suburb on the north side of Detroit where I switched it for a loaded box. This was at a place that makes pressure-sensitive steel, sheet steel, um, like uh, stainless sheet steel, real high-value type stuff. And then I took that box back to Fort Wayne, delivered it. That was kind of a full day, not not too much. Um, and then the rest of the week was spent running van trailer loads from Fort Wayne to a couple of, uh, canneries north of Madison, Wisconsin. I did two of those and it took from Wednesday to Friday and, uh, I found myself trying to get out of Wisconsin Friday afternoon, just before that freedom convoy. Uh, you may or may not be aware of there's a convoy of truckers that are apparently independently wealthy making their way across this country with an agenda supporting what uh, is commonly referred to as freedom. I have my reservations, but they were on their way through that area. So I got out of there in the nick of time and I got back 11 o'clock PM on Friday night. And uh, much of that night was spent afterwards getting ready for the Three Fat Truckers live stream on Saturday. Uh, we were happy with how well everything went. The show seems to be well received. In terms of the future, some of the challenges we need to address are the state of Dave and Steve's internet service. They both have a similar situation where they have excellent download speed, though their upload speed is uh, less than stellar. 
Uh, Steve, for example, has close to 15 megabytes per second download speed, but uh, less than 800 kilobytes per second upload speed. So that's not good for podcasting. That's not good for streaming. So streaming on Jitsi has been sometimes not so perfect. I mean, it's working, but it's if you look at the video, you'll notice that his video quality is kind of hit and miss. And Dave's situation is very similar. But that just speaks to the shocking state of Internet service in this country overall. I th- yeah, that's gross. Yeah. Or at least in Indiana. Yeah, that that's horrible. 800 Mbps up? No. To be fair, most people are not thinking of their upload speed when, when they go to purchase uh, their Internet service. And... When he caught when Steve, for example, he called his ISP, they told him that that was the fastest service they offered. Is he on satellite or something? No, he's on some kind of DSL. See, these these small towns up here have very few options that are good for content creators, for streamers and things like that. I mean, you can get all the download speed you want, but for whatever reason, the upload speed's just... But again, it's just people like us and gamers and things of that nature that that really care about the upload speed. Okay, so streaming on Jitsi is not always so perfect. Also, when you use the Jitsi developers' free-to-use servers, you are limited to one hour of stream time per stream. And the reason I wrote that is because you could end a stream and start another one and get a whole nother hour if you I mean if you were really that frosty. But every time you connect a stream, you get one hour, which I think might be yeah. The Eris, have you considered using Zoom and having the reason uh, Eris? The reason I don't use Zoom is because it's not open source. I mean, the whole point behind using Jitsi and OBS is I want to do. One of the things that's very important to me in this project is to use as much open source software as possible. And we'll get, we're going to get into that a little bit here in a few minutes. But uh, Jitsi, if it wasn't for that, I probably would have just used uh, Discord like we're used to doing here. And we wouldn't have any of these limitations. But one of the goals was to keep it as open source as possible. Um, so Jitsi was the best option that I could think of that would be software that I could manage and people like Dave and Steve could make use of as well. So that was, I mean, that's that's the answer to that question. Also, if you're using Jitsi and you're you're wanting to record and then upload, you've got the same hour restriction. And they also, at present, they only opt, offer the option of uh, saving to Dropbox, which I think is a curious choice for an open source project. But I also appreciate that not everybody who is running an open source project or developing an open source project is doing so because it's open source. It just happens to be the development model that they go by. I might consider in the future just self-hosting a server. I've got a lot going on with these servers I've got right now. Apparently, there's a way to do it with the Raspberry Pi. So that might be an option that I pursue in the future as soon as I get all the other technical debt paid uh, with regards to that show. But for now, I think I'm okay with the hour limit. I really feel like you start to lose people when you go over an hour, when you're talking about normal people that have a lot of other things to do. So uh, for that show, it might be a positive, a net positive, or that might just be me wanting to see the silver lining. But uh, for now, I'm going to consider that a positive thing. 
But anyways, that's what I've been. We're starting to lose me now. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and there's some real data out there that seems to indicate that after about 45 minutes, you know, you'll start to lose some people because, you know, your average regular person listening to a podcast, I mean, what? Are, how are they consuming the content they're doing that like on their way to work or something like that on a commute or whatever you know at 4x yeah <laughs> right so i mean it, it it might be a good thing to to uh, apply a little bit of limitation but that's it for me folks Okay, in announcements, our next episode will be 2 p.m. Central Time on March 20th, and we have a link to convert it to your time zone. And our next live stream will be 2 p.m. Central Time on March 12th, and again, we have a link to convert that to your time zone. Let's wrap this thing up. Joe, where can we find you? Well, if you like the sound of my voice, you can catch me on a couple other podcasts. I'm on the Linux Link Tech Show, which you can get at tllts.org. I'm on the Linux Lugcast, which is at linuxlugcast.com. You can find me on MeWe. You can send me an email directly, jb at mincast.org. And there is also a link to buy me a coffee in the show notes. Norbert? You can send me an email at norbert at mincast.org. You can find me on Full Circle Weekly News. At Distro Hoppers Digest, you can email me at bardmoss at pm.me, and all my other contact information is on itsmoss.com. Josh, what about you? You can email me at jt at mintcast.org. You can find me at Josh Thacker on Discord and at metal underscore foss on Twitter. And Joshua Hawk isn't with us today. He's at joshontech at mintcast.org at Josh on Tech on Twitter and most other social sites, and you can hear him on Crowbar Kernel Panic, his fairly regular podcast on Linux gaming. Nishant is not with us today. We've got Nishant at mintcast.org, Recon Ghost at Instagram and at GitHub, ghost.recon on Discord, and Maverick00783 at Steam. And Bill, what about you? Well, for the time being, at least, you can get a hold of me at uh, Bill at Mancast.org. I'm Bill underscore H on Discord. I'm at WC Hauser 3 on that there Twitter. And even uh, WC Hauser 3 on Facebook. Also, check out my new podcast, Three Fat Truckers. And the website for that is 3FTPodcast.org. Before we leave, we want to make sure to acknowledge some of the people who make Mintcast possible. Joshua Lowe for all his work on the website, Hobstar for our logo, InitRD for the animated Discord logo, and Londoner for our time sync. Norbert for audio editing. Bitemark Hosting for hosting Mintcast.org and our Mumble server. Archive.org for hosting our audio files. And the Linux Mint development team for the fine distro we love to talk about. Thanks, Thanks Clem. Clem. Thanks, Thanks Clem. Clem. Thanks, Clem. This has been another episode of the Mintcast podcast. The show notes for this episode are at mintcast.org. You can send us email at mintcast at mintcast.org. You can find more information about Linux Mint at www.linuxmint.com. You can follow both Mintcast and Linux Mint on Twitter, at Mintcast and at Linux underscore Mint. Thanks to Mark Blasco at 
podcastthemes.com for our theme music. And thanks for listening to this episode of The Midcast.